Hey everybody, it's Josh and Chuck, and we're coming to see you guys. Some of you, some cities, just listen up. That's right, because, you know, we just did Chicago and Toronto, and mm-hmm. it went great. Yeah. And I think our topic of beep went really well. It sure did. And everyone loved hearing about beep. That's right. So, if you're in Boston, you can come see us on August 29th at the Wilbur, Portland, Maine. Maine? At the State Theater on August 30th. I can't wait. I'm gonna. It's Labor Day weekend. I'm going to stay the whole weekend. I'll be all over Maine. That's great, man. Where else? We're going to be in Orlando on October 9th. And then on October 10th, we're going to be in New Orleans, man. And then later on that month, we're doing a three-night stand, the 23rd, 24th, and 25th at the Bell House in Brooklyn. That's right. 25th is sold out, but you can still get tickets for the 23rd and 24th. And we will see you then. Check it out at SYSKLive.com. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and there's Jerry over there. And This is Stuff You Should Know, the continuing courtroom drama edition. Yeah, this one, I think if you take our podcast on memory and our podcast on police lineups, mm-hmm. and they made love, <laughs> Yeah, then they would have this baby. I just came a little aroused, Chuck. Can you tell? <laughs> yeah, this is, uh, I guess, 2011 was the memory one, so that's been a while. Yeah, also you could sprinkle in a little photographic memory. Maybe that one was just watching. Sure. Okay. Jerry's so back. You, yeah, I know. Hey, Jerry, how are you? That's right. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> good answer. So, Chuck... Yes. Have you ever been wrongfully convicted of a crime based on eyewitness testimony? Not convicted. But you have been indicted on it, on a crime. Not indicted. You have been accused of a crime. I've been accused of crimes. <laughs> really? <laughs> sure. I think you should dish about that. You know, crimes against humanity. Okay. I'm going to take all that as a no, you never have. That's great. Um, but... It turns out there are plenty of people, hundreds so far in the U.S. alone, who have been found to have been wrongfully convicted of crimes, big crimes. I mean, crimes that have put them on death row um, based on eyewitness testimony. And in the last few decades, it's become really apparent that eyewitness testimony is, is really not great. I mean, we've known it for a long time, but thanks to DNA evidence coming along, we can now go back and say, um, yeah, this is this person was is innocent, actually. Yeah, you want to hear something, a little story? Yes, please. So the uh, we worked with a uh, locations person, actually two people. It's, it's a couple on some of the Stuff You Should Know stuff back in the day. Uh-huh. I think some of the shorts. Sure, I remember them. Uh, and uh, and locations, and I'm not going to say their names or anything to protect them. Uh, but they were riding their bikes and were hit and run last week. Oh, no. And um, she's fine now, but she was in the hospital. It was, it was not great. And they have – I've been following this on uh, social media. They have video from, you know, like everyone has cameras now, businesses mm-hmm. and homes and stuff. Mm-hmm. They have video of the incident. They have the, the car's license plate – as clear as day, the car is clear as day, the police have all this stuff, and the police are like, nothing we can do about it unless you have an eyewitness that can, like, say who the driver was. 
What? It's the same thing that happened to me in L.A. when, you know, I told that story back uh, in one of our shows mm-hmm. when I got hit and run and I couldn't identify this young woman in a, in a lineup card. Oh, yeah. And they're like, sorry. She said she didn't do it. I'm like, that's all you got to do is say I didn't do it. But the same thing is happening to them. They have, you wouldn't believe the clarity of these videos that show this car right. hitting them and leaving. And uh, they're like, nothing we can do about it. Man, that is crazy. So that's like a pretty good example of the law being slow to catch up to the current state of, I guess, the world, basically. Yeah, right? I mean, they're they're not, they're working the case and they're trying to find out who did it. But they can't simply go to the person's house who owns that car and like arrest somebody. I guess in a way, though, that, I mean, it sounds stupid and, and dumb, but at the same time, it is kind of reassuring, especially with the rise of deep fakes, which we've talked about, too. You can't just fabricate a, a video, especially a convincing one, and be like, go arrest this person. I guess so. My thought, though, is like, go bring in the person who owns the car, and you will probably very likely find out who was driving it. Sure. If it wasn't them. Yeah. Especially you know? if you uh, are are really uh, generous with the rubber hose, you know what I mean? <laughs> and the de-lousing. <laughs> I've met more of the um, the beating with the rubber hose. No, I know what you mean. Oh, okay. Well, you took it a different direction. <laughs> I was just thinking of Rambo in First Blood. What did they de-louse Rambo? Yeah, they de-loused him and then hit him with the uh, the fire hose. Oh, okay. Huh. But all this to say, uh, eyewitness testimony like is what's needed in many cases to to prove uh, guilt, but sure. it's so unreliable. Right, it's like a joke almost. It's well, it's the gold standard in the American justice system, and I would suspect just about every justice system that if somebody comes into a court and points at them, at the the suspect or the the defendant, and says, "I saw them." kill that person. I mm-hmm. saw them hit that couple with their car and drive off. I saw them. Other people who make up juries will be like, wow, how are you going to argue with that? You can't. This person's swearing under oath that they saw them do it. Um, they don't strike me as a liar. They don't seem to have anything to gain from lying about this. So I'm going to go ahead and believe this, this person and convict. But like we were, we've kind of been toying with a little bit and saying like eyewitness um, testimony isn't great. Um, you don't have to have some sort of vested interest in sending someone to prison. You don't have to be outright lying to basically send someone to jail who's actually innocent based on your own testimony. And while you're doing this, while you're testifying in court, you might actually fully believe what you're saying, even though what you're saying is fabricated and actually, you don't really recognize the person that you're saying you saw commit this crime. Yeah, and a jury is way more likely to uh, convict if you're, like, super, super sure, and you're like, oh, no, that was the person. I am 100% positive. Right. But as we will learn as we impact this topic, um, <laughs> that that confidence in court is not there from the beginning necessarily. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But if you think that confidence sells it, if uh, you have a cocky witness, they'll just kill the defendant on the spot. So, like, are you 100% sure? And they go, what did I just say? 
<laughs> exactly. That kind of witness will send you to the, the uh, electric chair or the lethal injection needle every yeah. day of the week. <laughs> They're called do I stutter witnesses. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, my God. All right, let's get into this. We've been dancing around it quite a bit. It's been a beautiful dance, but let's get into it, okay? Yeah, I guess this uh, 1959 paper was kind of says it all. Uh, a physiologist, I'm sorry, a psychologist, uh, mm-hmm. an attorney named Robert Redmount said, it has been suggested that the presumption is probably warranted to the effect that a random person given accurate original perception well, in the ordinary course of events, reflect a memory competent to serve most of the purposes for which it is demanded, which that's sort of a long way of saying, eh, memory's good enough, right? Yeah, basically that the, the average person walking around can serve as a, a reliable eyewitness to a crime, basically. And, and what what this 1959 brief is basically saying is like this is – this is the state of affairs in the American justice system that if you say you saw something and you say you're pretty sure that what you saw what you're saying or what you think you saw is accurate the the court system can rely on you enough to convict somebody yeah but almost to the point where it's like can we all just get on the same page here and agree that we'll just believe someone when they say they're they're really sure yeah I mean, it smacks of that, too, for sure. It definitely does. Like, I guess the guy was just trying to shore up any opposition to it. And, I mean, that was 1959. Um, But long before that, there were chinks in the armor of eyewitness testimony and just how reliable it was. Um, So, I mean, people have been using eyewitness testimony for basically ever. Sure. It's probably the oldest type of testimony that there is in in any kind of court or proceedings or anything like that. But starting in the early 20th century, as psychology kind of developed, one of the first things that psychology took on was the reliability of memory and eyewitness testimony. And one of the first people to take it on was a psychologist named uh, Hugo Munsterberg. I got the umlaut correct. Thanks, man. Nice job. He wrote a book called On the Witness Stand in 1908. And he's known still today as the father of applied psychology. He was a psychologist who said, hey, here's how psychology can help you in your day-to-day life, especially if your day-to-day life is that you're being convicted of a a crime based on eyewitness testimony. And um, he basically showed through a lot of experiments and exercises uh, when he was a lecturer at Harvard that memory was definitely not um, essentially just like a film strip or a videotape or for today's kids, an MP4 uh, file, you know, that that we, we don't just sit there and record the events going on around us in the world at all times and can go back and replay those events in our lives. And it's an accurate rendering of what we experience. That's just not the case. Well, yeah, and this is uh, with with students where they knew that they were doing memory tests and quizzes, right? and they knew that they were there to do that and had to focus on this stuff, and uh, you really need to concentrate and remember what I'm about to show you. Yeah, maybe have a sandwich beforehand. Yeah, and they were still inaccurate and really demonstrated what we all now know is the fact that human memory is very fallible. Mm-hmm. Like, forget about just happening down the street. You got a million things on your mind. You're right in the middle of texting someone, and you look up and you see a crime happen. Mm-hmm. Like, that has, uh, after reading this stuff, it seems like very little 
probability of you getting that stuff right. Right. Yeah, I saw somewhere that smartphones in general are, um, they're good in that, you know, they can help capture video of a crime or a photo of a crime. But at the same time, they really make a lot of witnesses unreliable because everyone is so distracted by their smartphones that they don't really see what's going on or don't, you know, they might have otherwise been a really good witness, but they were kind of glued to their phone at the time. I mean, you can, that's true without even, uh, I mean, that's true about everything when it comes to smartphones. Yes. I wasn't paying attention. I was looking at the phone or... Uh, the people that, you know, if I can complain about concerts again for a moment. <laughs> Go ahead, man. The people that videotape entire songs uh, are usually looking at it through their phone, and that's the worst possible way to experience a, a live musical moment. It really is, especially when you consider that they will probably never go back and watch that <laughs> that video. Yeah, my, you know Justin, my buddy. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, my tall British friend, He he yells... From behind them, so you can hear it on the video. You're never gonna watch it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as loud as he can, which is I'll, great. <laughs> he's probably right, like eighty percent of the time, I would say. Yeah, but I would like to see the next day where some of those people watch it and they hear Justin in the background screaming, <laughs> right. "You're never gonna watch it." They're probably like, "What is that guy talking about?" Or he's like, or the person watching is like, "I showed that guy." Right. <laughs> so um, Hugo Munsterberg, he wrote this thing on the witness stand, basically saying we should not. Just, you know, take everyone's word for it when an eyewitness comes forward in a a criminal proceeding. Like, there's problems with memory, and I've just demonstrated it. But his writings were largely overlooked because during World War I, he was from Germany, but he became a German-American. He wandered around vocally supporting Germany during the First World War, which is not something you wanted to do back then. No, it's not a good way to get your book uh, out there. No. So he was he was basically just ignored for many, many years, even though he was one of the first psychologists to take up this mantle. And it wasn't until about the mid-70s that psychology again took this up. And there were two psychologists in particular, a guy named Robert Buckout, uh, who basically was, was the first to be like, memory is not a videotape, is one way to put his research. And then another um, psychologist, a very famous uh, psychologist named Elizabeth Loftus, in the later 70s, a few years after Buckout, um, was really the one whose work kind of captured the popular imagination and made us all realize that we're just total frauds when we're recalling a memory. Well, yeah, and and with the advent of uh, DNA evidence and Mm -hmm. when, you know, all, all it took was a building up of cases being overturned because of DNA evidence where eyewitness testimony that was 100% positive was directly overturned. You get enough of those mounting up, and then all of a sudden the United States has a problem on their hands, and they have to say, oh, well, maybe we really need to look into this uh, whole thing about memory and eyewitness testimony not being super reliable. Right. Let's take the next 30 years to mull it over, basically. (laughs) Sure. So, um, yeah, that was the the Innocence Project in particular. There have been people working to exonerate people based on faulty evidence, which really got a a punch in the arm or shot in the arm after DNA evidence, like you were saying. But the Innocence Project in particular um, was started in 1992, and they've got like, I think, 365 exonerations under their belt. One for each day of the year. (laughs) Exactly. They do it on the the daily. We uh, We did a show on that, too, so. Yeah, you remember? Our, we talked our to, world is closing in. We talked to Paula Zahn. That's right. 
So I can tell by that sigh, I think you're ready for a, a message break. You want to take one? Yeah, I'm just going to Google some, some Paula Zahn, try to remember who she was. <laughs> All right. We'll be back right up to this. All right, so Chuck, we've been talking a lot of smack about the human memory. Let's back it up with some some facts and figures and stuff, okay? Yeah, I mean, there have been, like you said, the past 30 years is when the United States started doing, uh, I just said United, started <laughs> doing more and more studies on, on the human memory and how accurate it is. And it, it has really exposed the flaws and biases. Um, and it's really not even, I mean, it is memory, but it's also perception, Right. And what we perceive is going on. And there are a lot of, like, we don't all agree on what perception even means. And there are a lot of different theories about how visual perception works. Yeah, there's like a, a twofold issue with memory. There's the formation of memory, and then there's the recall, right? right? So with the formation of memory, it's like, yeah, if you can't agree on what constitutes reality, <laughs> you know, yeah. it makes it really tough to perceive reality in like a standard, uniform, objective way. But you can and form a wrong memory. That's like, that sure. should stop everyone cold in their tracks. Right, exactly. And there's the, the this is, there's basically two ways of looking at, um, at, at, uh, how we perceive reality. And it is either reality exists in some way that we don't perceive and we kind of paint this picture that we think of as reality, but yeah. that's not actually really reality. Or reality is reality, but we just kind of um, perceive it piecemeal um, in in order to save energy, save time, save storage space, whatever. But the upshot of both of these, and I, I really want to do an entire episode on the nature of reality someday, okay? Sure. But the upshot of these theories on what reality is and how we perceive them is that we basically take what we need from the environment, from whatever scene we're observing, whatever, and then we kind of fill in the blanks to create this complete picture. And in doing so, if if we're just kind of walking through a meadow or something like that, enjoying the day, that doesn't really matter, right? We can kind of recall what the butterfly that flew by looked like, what its colors were, what the trees looked like. But if we really dig in, did we actually look at the trees that kind of provided the backdrop of this scene? Or is it just kind of a, a conception of what trees in general look like in that situation um, that our minds filled in? And when people started like, thinking about this stuff, not just psychologists, but neurologists, philosophers, all these, a, a lot of different people trying to figure out, you know, how we go through the life and reality and, and perceive the world. Um, it became really apparent that we do a lot of shorthand construction as we're kind of moving through life. And when we're walking through a meadow, not that important. When we're convicting a, a person of um, robbery and murder, then it does become important. And, and it is a, an issue that we just kind of fill in the blanks to create a whole picture that didn't necessarily happen. Yeah, that I don't know if anyone uh, listening has ever seen the hollow mask illusion. 
Um, that has to do with gestalt theory, basically that our perceptions are based on perceptual hypotheses. Mm-hmm. So, like, that's us making these educated guess, educated, yeah, educated yeah. guesses about um, the sensory information that our eyeballs and our ear holes. And we should point out that eyewitness testimony can mean audio, like oh, something yeah. you overheard as well. Right. Um, I don't know how well other senses have performed in court. I was thinking about that. Like, I guess, you know, did you smell a chemical smell or something like Maybe. that? That would be one. But, I mean, I don't know what else you would, like, did you did you feel the murderer's touch? Taste. I don't know. <laughs> did you lick the guy <laughs> who was robbing the gas station? Uh, but if you look at the, 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 the great example of Gestalt theory and that um, perceptual hypotheses is the hollow mask. So if you go online, there's one... Um, very famous one of Albert Einstein, and it's basically someone will show you um, what looks like um, a, a mask of Albert Einstein's face, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then they start to turn it around, and w- about halfway through, you realize that you are looking at the inside of that mask and not the outside of that mask. Right. And it's painted, of course, but it's still uh, concave, so it shouldn't look convex but it, yet it does and it's a right. mind trick and it's really freaky it is but it also just kind of goes to show that our brains leap to conclusions basically yeah absolutely uh another thing is that the whole darwinian approach is basically if you're in a in a dangerous situation um, your brain is going to quickly decide what's most important to pay attention to in that scene mm-hmm. um and that that will of course skew uh, reality, depending on what's going on. Plus, also, so 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 that's point one. Our brains fill in the blanks, probably more than we realize, to create our idea of reality and memory. Right? Yes. E- and even when we're actually actively taking in information, the the um, just how good, say, like our eyesight is sure. or our hearing is, or really how the lighting in. is on a street, or exactly. And that's one thing that that defense attorneys in particular will um, will try to attack is oh, or sure. things like that. Like, you know, do you wear glasses or contacts? Have you ever had LASIK? Uh, was it raining out? Was it nighttime? You know, how far away were you? That streetlight was under repair. We have records. Exactly. And the whole courtroom goes, <gasps> yeah, it's yeah. the big moment. And Perry Mason shoots a duck. <laughs> <laughs> Perry Mason farts in court. I didn't say that. I said he shoots a duck. Okay. <laughs> All right. It was his his thing, at, at least at first in the early episodes. And then the producers were like, this isn't going anywhere. We're going to drop this as his thing. Your Honor, I object. <laughs> right. That's right. That was from episode three. Yep. Oh, boy. Um, so there, there has to be a standard here, though, um, when it comes to court and, like, how well people see – I mean, it can't it, – I mean, it is case by case in that every case is its own unique thing mm-hmm. in court. But there has to be some sort of standard as far as, like, how well does somebody with twenty twenty vision see, for instance. Right. And there's a guy named Jeffrey Loftus, uh, a researcher from, uh, I believe, is it UW? Yeah, UW. And he kind of developed this formula on twenty twenty vision over distance – which basically says at 10 feet, you might not be able to see eyelashes on a person's face. Right. Uh, At 200 feet, you may not be able to see eyes. And at 500 feet, 
you could see a person's head, but it's just a big blur. So, like, this could be uh, – and is this the standard that they use in court? I think he's trying to to make it a standard, and I'm sure he gets called on as a professional witness and, sure. and says all this, but I don't believe it's it's an actual – um, like it's been judged to be like the standard. Like they don't know. whip out a chart in court. No, but I think if you really wanted to get the point across, you could do worse than hiring Joffrey Loftus. Yeah, and I imagine don't they also do? Uh, do they test these people? Um, I don't know. I think if you have a really good defense attorney, you could probably ask that a witness, if not go to an optometrist, at least ha- have their. Um, their optometrist records subpoenaed. Or in the, the dramatic uh, TV or film version, you see the, uh, Your Honor, if I may, step to the rear of the courtroom. <laughs> and you do that move. Right. And then, you know, you hold up two fingers and you say, how many fingers am I holding up? And, and, then, then, what, and then Mr. Brady right. tosses a briefcase. <laughs> yep. And the guy with the neck brace on turns his head. What a chump that guy was. <laughs> he was not committed. No. That's so great that you said that because it was between that or a Perry Mason joke for me if I was going to swoop in. Okay. I don't know much Perry Mason. Did he fart in court? No, I just totally made that up. Oh, okay. I don't know anything about him either. I just gotcha. know it was Raymond Burr. Oh, sure. Or no, wait, and he was Ironsides or was he both? He was both, buddy. Okay. But I mean, if there was ever somebody that looked like he'd fart in court, it's Raymond Burr. Sure. <laughs> you know, even like put together um, clean shaven Raymond Burr from Perry Mason. Yeah, he does look gassy, doesn't he? A little bit. <laughs> so, okay, moving on, Chuck. There's also the problem um, that researchers have found that we humans have a finite amount of attention. Yes. Right? And if there's a bunch of stuff going on at once or we have to pay attention to multiple things in quick succession, it's been found that there are a lot of um, problems with that. Yeah. That, that we don't really do real well with fast-paced stuff coming at us, especially when we're stressed out or in a high-stress situation. Yeah. It's like this stuff is really neat. There's something called attentional blink, mm-hmm. um, not intentional, attentional. And that's when um, – like when you're just looking around at things – Anywhere you are, it feels like one big fluid thing where you're taking in everything, but that's not really happening. Uh, when you, you know, if I'm looking at this coffee cup and then I look up at your face, mm-hmm. there's something called attentional blink, which is a little blip, less than a second, where there is an, um, I guess, just an interruption mm-hmm. in uh, input. Yeah, in your attention. Yeah. You know, you're, you're shifting from one thing to the other. And it's not a fluid motion. It's kind of like a hiccup. But you don't notice this. No, you don't. It all blends seamlessly because your brain is filling in these little gaps. But during that period, if something really vital happened in that, say, half of a second span, you might not notice it. And because we've already seen that our brains tend to fill in information to create a smooth picture of reality, that could be problematic for the person who you're saying you saw do something or didn't see. That's right. The other thing about attentional blink, too, is that it really kind of points out that if um, if we are really focused on one thing, we might miss another, that our attention is, is very selective. Like a smartphone. Basically, yeah. Um, yeah. You, you know, if you're like into your smartphone, you're not paying attention to stuff going on around you. Um, even if like you're driving, like if you're driven up next to somebody and they're driving like... 30 miles an hour under the speed limit, which supposedly is safe, but, you know, they're on their phone. 
and you honk at them and like flip them off and like throw a <laughs> rock at their windshield, that kind of thing. And they yeah. don't even look up. Yeah. They don't know it's, you're there. No, they have no idea. That's kind of the same thing. But there's this really amazing video that I hadn't heard of, but these uh, two magicians I know, Jared and John, who are, I hope are working on a podcast um, about this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, they pointed it out. Did you go see that video that was linked in this article? Mm, which one? The one that was created in 1999 by Daniel Simmons and Christopher Shabris or Shabri, where it's the ball passing video. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. So I, I don't want to give anything else out about it. Yeah, but totally. Everybody just go look up 1999 Daniel Simmons ball passing video and prepare to be amazed. But it really drives home like what the, the, um, just how focused we can become at the expense of other information. That's right. Um, what else, Chuck? Uh, well, there's something called the psychological refractory period, or the PRP. Um, and that's when if two things, if two cognitive tasks, and this can include, you know, you seeing things, uh, if they arrive really closely together, there's a bit of a lag time uh, between when we process these two things, that first thing and then that second thing. So mm-hmm. if these things are coming in quick succession uh, or they are very intense or there are a lot of different stimuli, there is a little bottleneck, a processing bottleneck that can occur. Mm-hmm. And um, especially in a in a, like a, a scary experience, like if someone sticks a gun in your face or something, right? The the you know the big example that you always hear is like, what was the weapon? Was it a gun or a knife? And it's been kind of shown time again. If you're, if you are, if someone comes and sticks a gun in your face, you are going to have your attention on the gun and more so than the face. Mm-hmm. So you might not be able to recall what your perpetrator looked like. Uh, you may have more information about the gun, which is a little helpful, but not as much as their face. Yeah, you know, I think I told you before that time that Yumi got mugged, um, she was not focused on the gun and did not know that the guy had had a gun on her. Yeah. And her friends, um, when she was asked if there was a gun at the cop station, she's like, I I actually don't know. Like, she didn't process the gun. Right. And her friends were like, yeah, there was a gun. The guy had a gun. um, Which is, I, I hadn't realized, like, I get that, you know, not processing something because of a stressful situation. But it's it's funny that's like the opposite, apparently, of how it usually is. Yeah, and I think you can sort of uh, train yourself. I mean, hopefully this kind of thing doesn't happen over and over again and <laughs> right. like to Yumi or anyone else. But like I've sort of told myself, like if anything ever happens, try and keep your wits about you and take in as much detail as you can and, and like – repeat it in your brain over and over. That's just good advice for, like, daily living. Sure. That's mindfulness, I think. <laughs> yeah, that's a good well, point. I, t- I told you before, I think it was the police lineups one, that she was able to pick the guy out in the lineup, so maybe she was focused on the guy's face and well, yeah. was missing the gun rather than the opposite. Exactly. She Was, was that a finger in your pocket? <laughs> right. Don't, don't say the second part. <laughs> so I'm not going to. I'm okay, just going to leave it up to the listeners. Yes. Yeah. Dirty, dirty listeners' minds. So um, there's also another one for forming memories that uh, has kind of confounded researchers for a while. Um, and it's called the own race bias or cross-race effect. Yeah, we talked about this in police lineups, didn't we? I feel like we did, but I think it's worth going over one more time. Sure. 
So it basically is, it says that if you are a witness and you witness a crime that's that's carried out by somebody from another race or ethnic group other than yours, you're going to have a harder time recognizing that person um, than you would if they were a member of your own race or ethnic group. And so it, the, 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 it, it seems easy peasy, well, that you're just a racist and every, everybody of another race looks alike to you. That's not the case. They found that people who score um, low on questionnaires about being prejudiced um, also are subject to the cross-race effect, and that it, it's across the board for everybody of any race. They're all equally subjected, uh, or they're equally, um, what's the word? Victims of it, I guess. Mistaken? Yeah. Miss, it's, uh, it's in there somewhere. Misidentified? No, they're equally susceptible. Susceptible. Sure. <laughs> all those we things. got there. We got there, Chuck. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, and that's really interesting. Like, you could... You could test out as the least prejudiced person on the planet and still misidentify someone um, from another race. Yeah, and they think that different races have different defining characteristics and that you as a, a child and probably well into adulthood are kind of trained to pick out the identifying characteristics of people of your own race, um, which doesn't necessarily apply to people of other races. Sure. And so people really are bad at distinguishing different members of different races not because they're racist and everybody looks alike, but because they're looking for the wrong cues, distinguishing cues. Yeah, and, you know, sometimes people can look like other people. <laughs> sure. It's uh, in the, the famous cases section. I'm going to go ahead and pick one out of there. Oh, yeah, I uh, know the which one. very famous case of Ronald Cotton. Mm -hmm. uh, in 1984, he was identified as the perpetrator of a rape, sentenced to life in prison, and— uh, I went back and I looked at the person who eventually was found out to be the the he was exonerated, mm -hmm. uh, Cotton was, but the the real guy Bobby Poole that I saw side by side images. And these guys look a lot alike. They look a lot alike. Like their noses are different, but if you block out their nose, their the lower half of their face and their eyes and forehead are really really similar. And I think that's just a case of really bad luck. It was really bad luck. It ultimately panned out to be really good luck. But, I mean, the, the, the victim, the eyewitness was the victim, a woman named um, Jennifer Thompson. Yeah. And during the rape, she did, she took your advice and, like, kept her wits about her as much as possible and took the opportunity to study mm -hmm. the guy's face. Yeah. But because Poole and Cotton looked so much alike— um, she, there was, there was, it was a case of mistaken identity of a, a witness who actually, as we'll see, was kind of unsure at first, but became more and more confident, which is right. a big problem. Um, but she, when Cotton was exonerated, um, Jennifer Thompson and, and Ronald Cotton went on to write a book about the whole thing together. Yeah, they're friends. They got to be friends because she experienced a tremendous amount of guilt mm -hmm. for uh, identifying this man and, and him serving time for something he didn't do. And, uh, yeah, they wrote a book together, which is now, I was like, oh, man, that's, tell me that's going to be a movie soon. Yeah. And as of, like, a couple of months ago, it was, uh, it was optioned to oh, be yeah? a film. Nice. It's called, uh, the book's called Picking Cotton. Oh, my. Uh, yeah, I know. Um, Picking Cotton, colon, Our Memoir of Injustice and Redemption. Semicolon. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> so, yeah, the, the, the good luck he had, though, was that Bobby Poole and Ronald Cotton were in the same jail together, and they were frequently mistaken for one another. That's how much they really looked alike. Yeah. And I guess um, Bobby Poole um, 
blabbed to another inmate that he was the one who had really uh, raped Jennifer Thompson and that Cotton was in there uh, wrongfully. And that word got around, and then finally, thanks to DNA evidence, Ronald Cotton was was excluded from the crime. Yeah. Nice ending to that story. It is. That's the only one in the list that does have a nice ending, though. (laughs) That's true. Uh, So... Here's the other thing with eyewitness testimony, or should we take a break? Up to you, pal. All right, let's take a break, and I'll tell you about that other thing right after this. So here's the other thing about eyewitness testimony. All right. Is that, uh, like, you have to do this a bunch of times. It's not like you identify someone in a police lineup and then you're in court the next day. Right. You identify someone in a lineup and then you're going to get grilled by cops after that. And then you're going to get talked to by your attorney beforehand. Mm -hmm. And you're going to be recalling this and describing this scene and this, uh, who you think is a perpetrator, a lot of times. And every time this happens, um, something can go wrong with your recall, basically. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, like, we've talked about this so many times, but every time you recall a memory, you are adding to it. You're, um, you're adding more information to it, right? And that information can be incorrect or flawed, and if we, if our brains kind of strive to create as complete a picture as possible, if the memory originally is incomplete, the more we recall it, the more we're going to round it out to create this, this, this picture. And since part of the process, like you're saying, of going through the criminal justice system as an eyewitness is to recall over and over and over again, by definition, that process um, leads to contaminated evidence, in this case, the evidence of an eyewitness's um, testimony. Yeah, and, you know, not to mention when cops get in there, uh, they ask leading questions a lot mm-hmm. of times. And even this one example is really great, even swapping out one word. One. That you might not think matters. If if you hear the questions, did you see the broken headlight, as opposed to, did you see a broken headlight, mm-hmm. that takes on a whole different meaning because in that mm-hmm. first one, the cop is basically saying, there was a broken headlight, and did you see it? Not was right. there one. Yep. That's called the misinformation effect, and it can be as innocuous as that. It can be purposeful. Like, if a cop believes that the suspect is the one, um, cops have been known to ask leading questions. And when you have a, a an eyewitness who's kind of so-so on something, after a few leading questions and they're answering, they can become more and more confident in their um, in their their memory, their recall of the event, and then th- that coupled with the fact that well, this is the right person, obviously, because the cops wouldn't be prosecuting um, or arresting somebody if it wasn't the right person. That just gives the whole thing even more confidence. And studies have found over time, the more confidence. Um, or the the longer and um, more often a memory is recalled, the more confidence grows associated with it, and the less it's, accurate it may be. Right, right. Ooh. So there's this there's like a um, a negative correlation yeah. over time between 
confidence and accuracy of a of a memory over time that's a big distinction that we'll get into later but the longer it goes on so say like a, from the time a crime occurs to the time the court date comes or the trial starts mm-hmm. it could be a year and sure. you the eyewitness might have had to recall this for half a dozen people at least, not to mention all the friends and family that you've shared the story with. And so what a lot of people say is by the time, maybe the second, third, fourth time you're recalling this, you're not recalling your original memory any longer. You're recalling the story that was helped uh, to be fabricated by the cops and the prosecutors and in some part by yourself just from telling this. You're recalling the story. You're not recalling the actual memory. And that's a real problem because that's how people get um, wrongly convicted by eyewitnesses who go into court and say, I'm 100% certain that that was the person that I saw commit that crime. Yeah, and the thing, I mean, if you just think about in your own lives, uh, not, I mean, forget crimes and forget courtrooms. Like, just think about stories that you like, great stories from your life that you've told a bunch of different times Mm -hmm. about this one time when. Like, these become so burned in your brain as these great stories that, like, I'm always curious to, like, I wish I had video of these stories as they happened because it'd be (laughs) kind of fun to go back and see this funny story about when, like, my friend and I got shaken down by the... Texas Highway Patrol. Like, I tell the story all the time. But it and, like, turns out— I wonder what really happened that day, though. <laughs> right. It's like, by the, by the end of the story, by the time the story is told, it's like um, Chuck Norris himself with Walker, <laughs> Texas Rangers, doing the, the search. Or, or my ghost story in Athens. Like, to me, I tell that story exactly as it happened. Mm-hmm. But who knows? Well, yeah, it's kind of like you're playing a game of telephone with yourself over time, you yeah. know? Like, stuff just gets kind of muddled and— and again, normally this doesn't matter, you know, unless you happen to be telling a, a bit of a fishtail to somebody who can't stand fishtails and, and calls you out on it. It doesn't really matter, right? Like, it does matter in a court of law. And the fact that the courts have continued to pretend like this this isn't an actual implication of the human memory. The human memory is actually infallible. And just continued on with eyewitness testimony has been a problem in the past. I'm not sure if we've gotten that across or not yet. <laughs> and consider this, too, that juries, I mean, we talked about that confidence building over time. Mm-hmm. By the time you get to that jury and you are super confident, that's going to have a huge impact. Juries are going to be far more influenced by a confident witness than someone's like, hey, I'm pretty sure. But, you know, if I'm really being honest because I'm on the witness stand, I, I can't be 100 percent sure. Yeah, that is a rare eyewitness from what I can tell, that, that by the time the trial comes along, they have been so prepped and, and um, guided oh, yeah. and have become so confident that from what I can tell, it would be really rare to hear an eyewitness be like, I'm not so sure, maybe. They probably wouldn't make it to the witness stand because the prosecutor doesn't want somebody yeah. like that on the stand. So what you're going to hear in court is, yes, I'm absolutely sure. And you know, juries are just normal people. They're not doing the research on, you know, the the possible infallibility or the possible fallibility of eyewitness testimony. So it's up to the the defense attorneys to kind of poke holes in this stuff. And so they will. But for a long time, this was really surprising to me. I had no idea. Um, courts wouldn't allow expert testimony that that basically taught jurors how 
many problems there are with human memory and that eyewitness testimony is not all it's cracked up to be. And that not only should you not be wowed by the confidence of somebody who comes into court a year after the crime and says, I'm 100% certain, you should probably discount that that testimony altogether. Yeah, and the reason that they weren't allowed is that they claimed that was common sense. Like, everybody knows that our memories aren't great, and eyewitness testimony probably isn't great. Whereas, it seems to me obvious that you would want to get an expert in there to at least explain this stuff. Especially in, like, a capital case. Yeah, I mean, you can still make up your own mind, but at least know the facts and the science behind eyewitness mm-hmm. uh, identification so you can, like, take that into consideration as a juror. Right. That's just not the case. That wasn't it. But then apparently they started um, turning overturning convictions because the expert witness on eyewitness testimony um, was disallowed. Right. And once that started happening, they started allowing them in the actual trials. But that's kind of like if you have a defense attorney and you're, you're you know, being um, tried for a really important crime that you could get some serious time for, you want that attorney to bring in an, a, a witness, an expert witness on yeah. eyewitness testimony for sure. Yeah, the Supreme Court uh, themselves in 1977 ruled 7 to 2 uh, that eyewitness testimony is constitutional. It does not violate the 14th Amendment. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if it's suggestive, but they said it was subject to five factors that uh, just depends. It's a case-by-case thing, but um, the witness's degree of attention, Right. so you have to determine that, um, the opportunity of the witness to view the criminal at the time of the crime. Right. So I guess just literally, physically, were you able to see this happen, right? Or, or smell or hear or sure. lick the criminal. Um, the, the accuracy of the prior description of the criminal that's a big one, and that still holds up today. Yeah. Um, like, if, if you told the cops initially that the guy had a mustache and he right. didn't have a mustache, you're going to hear about that from the defense during oh, yeah. during the trial. And we'll get into that later on, but that, that you know, that sort of virgin description, is that the right word to use? <laughs> I love it. Is <laughs> the one that really should count. Sure. All right, and then what were the last two uh, factors of the five? Um, the level of certainty demonstrated at the confrontation and by confrontation they mean that that's the thing that you always see on like courtroom dramas where the witness they say you know did do you see the perpetrator here today and the witness says yes that man there and then they say let the record show that the def- the witness is pointing at the defendant that's, and then perry mason farts <laughs> right <laughs> That's the that's the particular one that's under attack today because right. they're saying like how certain does that witness seem when they they confront the the defendant in court right and then the last one is the time between the crime and the lineup like right. you know was it what if the witness saw the crime and then the cops don't catch the person for you know 3 months is that too long yeah like does the witness become unusable at that point and those five those were the, the tests for constitutionality of an eyewitness's testimony yeah i think those are five pretty decent factors to consider yeah except for the one the one about the the certainty demonstrated at conf- confrontation and that's the big battle today because some people are like look man if human memory is that fallible, maybe we should just get rid of eyewitness testimony altogether. 
Right, but now I think is the approach like, hey, why don't we just treat it like anything that can be contaminated mm-hmm. from uh, from like physical evidence? Like, why don't we just treat this like physical evidence and say, you know, it was that again that virgin identification <laughs> is the one that counts, and everything after that is tainted. Yeah, and so everybody on this there's a there's kind of a battle over just how much confidence relates to. Um, Accuracy mm-hmm. and memory. Yeah, that's the the crux. Right, but both sides say everything after that first recall, whether it's telling the cop on the scene of the crime what you saw, or whether it's the lineup, wherever it is, the first memory test is what it's called. Um, the first time you do that, that is the only evidence that should be admissible. And everybody can talk about that evidence, and you can come to court and describe that evidence. But every other time you recall it after that, it should be considered contaminated evidence just as much as you would consider um, somebody dropping a, a, a blood on a blood sample as contaminated or smearing a fingerprint as contaminated. Same thing. That's the big the big crux. Everybody says disregard everything after that. Where they disagree though, Chuck, is just how much during that first um, that first uh, uh, memory test, how much confidence is correlated to accuracy. Right. And some people say it's very highly correlated. Like one guy said, that in I think fifteen different experiments, they found that the that accuracy was ninety one percent ninety seven percent accurate. Um, confidence indicated a ninety seven percent accuracy. And other people are like, "That's flim flam. Don't listen to that guy." But that's the battle that's going on right now. But everybody agrees that whole courtroom. That's the man right there. That that shouldn't hold any water whatsoever. The problem is that holds the most water because that's what's done in front of a jury. These are human beings, you know. Someone yeah. might carry that kind of confidence uh, in every area of their life, mm-hmm. whereas someone else might be very unsure about everything in their life. And that wouldn't be a time for them to be like, you know, someone who's not very confident is probably going to have a hard time being super confident about something this important. Sure. You know? But you also could imagine that that person would maybe be more easily coached than than somebody who does have a lot of self-confidence. Coach them up. Yeah. Isn't that the phrase? That's <laughs> what it says. <laughs> the T-shirts say. Coach them up. So you want to go over any of these other ones? I guess we can. I mean, this is all sort of Innocence Project stuff. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, there have certainly been plenty of examples over the years. I think uh, of the 300 and, well, how many? You said there's 352 now? 365 that I saw. Oh, 365 convictions. Mm-hmm. At this time, let's just say it was 349 uh, that they had overturned. 70% of them were based on the testimony of an eyewitness. And this is just death row. Like, forget muggings. Yeah, the the I don't know if it's all just death row or not, but that's it's some of these two were not just single witnesses, multiple eyewitnesses, which if there's one thing that basically says there was... A, a cop or a prosecutor who coached everybody to basically share the same story, that's it. It's a overturned conviction with multiple eyewitnesses that DNA evidence shows were all incorrect. Yeah, this one right here was especially maddening. Uh, Jerome White in 1979 was convicted of rape and robbery, and he was exonerated 12 years later. Mm-hmm. But the real guy who did the crime was in the actual same lineup 
where uh, White was identified. Yeah. So that one's especially tough uh, pill to swallow. The one that gets me, um, do you remember Troy Davis? Oh, yeah. Like back in 2011, Georgia um, executed Troy Davis for the murder of a, a cop, Mark McPhail. Um, in Savannah, and, right? Yeah, down in Savannah. Yeah. And there was no physical evidence and no weapon. Nothing tied Troy Davis to the crime except for nine eyewitnesses, seven of which recanted their testimony. And um, it was a big deal because a lot of people are like, it looks like Georgia's going to execute an innocent man. We need to get this commuted to a life sentence so we can try to figure this out. And there was a petition that went around. I remember signing it. There was 660,000 signatures on this petition, and it still didn't get his sentence commuted. And Georgia executed what was almost certainly uh, an innocent man for the murder of Mark McPhail. Yeah, that was tough. Which also means that the murderer of Mark McPhail is still out there somewhere. Yeah, I think that's not mentioned enough in these cases. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's obviously we should think about the victim Right. Then the vic- the second victim, which is the person falsely accused. Yeah. And then there's also a murderer out there. Yep. Maybe. Yeah. That was a that's another episode I want to do is is you know times when the the um when almost certainly innocent people were executed. Okay, that'll that's, be a fun one. That's a good title for the episode. <laughs> You've got to put the um in there too. Yeah. Uh, well, that's it for eyewitness testimony, unless you have something else. I got nothing else. Well, Chuck says nothing else. I got nothing else. So that means, everybody, it's time for listener mail. Uh, this is a very sweet email. Okay. Uh, hey, guys. On Father's Day in 2015, our son Aaron died uh, from cancer at the age of 40. Uh, one of his last wishes was for his beloved Australian shepherd dog, Scully, to live on a family farm with some wonderful friends he knew from Pennsylvania. Uh, Scully's with uh, was with us in Southern California at the time, so I began looking at options to send her back, and it became obvious that driving Scully to Gettysburg was the only true way to say goodbye and carry out Aaron's wish. I announced to the family I was taking her back, and our daughter, who had come home to be by his side uh, while he was in hospice, quickly said she wanted to come with me. Uh, without any further delay, the three of us took off across the country. After a few hours of listening to the radio, our daughter, Brandy, said, Do you want to listen to some podcasts? Sure, was my response. What's a podcast? Uh, She plugged in her phone and started an episode of Stuff You Should Know. And from that moment on, for the next four days, we listened to an endless stream of you guys. Uh, I wanted to thank you for helping us cope with the pain and heartache we were dealing with. Uh, Your banter and fun were very therapeutic as my daughter and I traveled across country with our thoughts and Scully. Uh, Being with my daughter and sharing all this time together with you by our sides was one of the best experiences of my life given the circumstances. Uh, I now listen to you guys often, and my daughter even bought me a Jerry Quote Blank (laughs) T-shirt. That's a good one. (laughs) As a reminder of our time together. And that is from uh, Doug and Brandy Bell. Thanks a lot, Doug, and thanks a lot, Brandy. I like the cut of your jib for suggesting stuff you should know. Yeah, terrible Um, circumstance, but I'm I'm glad Scully's on that farm in Pennsylvania. Thanks, Doug. Thank you, Brandy. And uh, on behalf of all of us, our deepest condolences... We're glad that we could have some small part in making it a little better for you. Absolutely. If you want to get in touch with us like Doug did, um, you can go on to stuffyoushouldknow.com and check out our social links. You can also uh, send us an email to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. 
For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.